This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. As our population ages, Alzheimer's disease and other dementias are becoming a very common health condition. Currently, it's estimated that nearly 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's disease, and more than 16 million individuals are providing unpaid care to others with dementia. Usually, this care is provided by family members. Since the family plays such an important role in the care of these individuals, as healthcare providers, we need to provide care to the patient, but also make sure their caregivers have our assistance and our support. With us to discuss caring for caregivers of dementia patients is Dr. Erica Tung, an internist and geriatrician practicing in the Division of Community Internal Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Erica, welcome. Thanks, Daryl. Pleased to be here. Well, let's talk about the diagnosis of dementia first. Um, What have you noticed in terms of what symptoms family members pick up in terms of what they've noticed in their loved one, and then they often come into your office? Yeah, well, great question. There are many signs and symptoms of early dementia. And interestingly, it's not always just a change in memory or recall that their care partners notice first. Cognitive impairment has many different domains. So I'll give you some examples. Mm -hmm. So perhaps sometimes we notice language changes. Sometimes a care partner might notice that their loved one has a difficult time finding the right words, losing their train of thought frequently, or uh, being unable to complete a thought, uh, or perhaps even confabulating to fill in gaps in the memory or using humor to cover up gaps. Sometimes family members might notice that their loved one seems a bit more withdrawn. And this often happens when social activities become overwhelming or anxiety provoking that that person that's having some difficulty managing those social interactions might start to avoid those uh, activities. And so sometimes the care partners might even bring their loved one in thinking they're depressed Mm -hmm. or apathetic. Um, Oftentimes care partners will notice that their loved one is having a difficult time with problem solving. So making change in a restaurant, planning a meal, doing things that they normally were able to do quite easily. And then of course, short-term recall or cognition or encoding new information is probably the most common thing that brings people Mm -hmm. in. So not just memory loss, but behavior change. Yeah. So, Oftentimes, we think of Alzheimer's disease being associated with just short-term memory loss, but really we can see a whole myriad of different symptoms. Mm -hmm. How often have you seen patients themselves coming in thinking that they may have dementia versus being brought in by a family member? Yeah. So uh, it's almost, I would say, almost 50-50. You know, I think years ago we always thought that most individuals with dementia didn't have insight into their own deficits. But in reality, we see both situations. Sometimes an individual will notice subjective memory concerns, or perhaps it's taking more effort to perform activities with efficiency. Um, Or other times it's a close friend or a family member that starts to make comments or notices that they're asking the same question over and over again, and they bring their loved one in. Mm And I assume that some of these patients have 
mild cognitive impairment, and that's also important to uh, to recognize. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We think of that that gray area, mild cognitive impairment, as that intermediate between normal cognitive function and dementia. And, and some of those people will continue to have MCI, and others will mm-hmm. regress back to normal. And, and but many will progress to yeah. dementia. Now, I, I've seen many patients where there have been cognitive changes, behavior changes, and family members have just assumed that, well, this is just a normal part of aging. Mom's just getting older. Do you see that? Yeah. Sometimes I think it's hard to think about this condition. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a really difficult diagnosis when we're talking about dementia. And so sometimes I think it is normal to miss some of those subtle or more insidious changes and chalk them up to yeah. normal aging, especially I think um, a lot of older adults that might have less insight into their deficits might chalk it up sure. to the normal aging. And very often when a diagnosis is established, you know, you talk to the family and they say, yeah, actually, I do recall having seen symptoms going back sometimes several years. Yeah, absolutely. You know, most people will have on average six to seven years of symptoms before the diagnosis is made. Mm -hmm. I've been impressed with how well patients with even moderately advanced dementia do when nothing changes. You know, if they stay in their home, there's no change in their routine, but then they end up in a hospital or maybe in a nursing home for a period of time things deteriorate quickly. Yeah, absolutely. When we challenge the brain and require it to multitask or to deviate from the routine, uh, that's that's sometimes when the wheels fall off the wagon. And so uh, we can use what we know, what you just observed, um, to our advantage and give care partners and individuals living with cognitive impairment directions to follow a schedule to a T. Mm-hmm. Wake up at the same time, have your meals at the same time, um, sleep in the same bed every night. Um, so don't, you know, spend um, uh, the week at a relative's house at Christmas time. You're really keeping up with the same routine can set you up for success. Yeah. One thing I've always found difficult is giving the diagnosis to a patient or their family members about a, a specific type of dementia. How do you share that uh, that information? That's a that's a great topic, Daryl, and something I feel really strongly about. Communication of the diagnosis in a really honest and compassionate way is really important. I a couple of, of um, tips I would share with healthcare providers that are doing this. First, I think it's much better if we do this face to face with the individual and whoever they identify as their care partner or whoever is close to them. It's really hard news to receive and and it's important that we provide them with a clear and honest diagnosis and ensure that they know that we're on the journey with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that partnership is so important because this is a frightening diagnosis to receive both to the patient and the family and knowing that you're going to be there to work with them to get them uh, manage through this terrible disease is so important. Yeah, I think it's also important that we're Uh, clear with the terminology we use in the medical record so that we can communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. And so if our patient shows up in the emergency room or shows, heaven forbid, shows up in the ICU, that those healthcare providers know what the individual's baseline is, what their capacities and challenges are, what their goals of care are. Let's talk about the specifics of making a diagnosis. And we often use mental status exams as the first kind of screening test 
and there are several of them out there. Have you found one that's uh, most useful? Yeah, you're right. There are numerous validated tests, and there isn't a one-size-fits-all gold standard test. I think when I'm trying to decide which test to use in the office, I first try and ask myself, what am I trying to determine? If I need a quick and easy test in the middle of a busy general medical exam to know whether I should be worried or not, I'll do an easy test called the mini-cog. Mm -hmm. The mini-cog is a great um, you could almost use it like a case finding or screening tool where we ask the individual to remember three items. We ask them to draw a clock with the hands at 10 past 11, and then we ask them to recall those three items. We um, had them encode. That's a great quick and easy test. If they score abnormally on that, then I'll probably bring them back mm -hmm. for a dedicated mental status exam and neurologic exam. When I'm doing one of these dedicated exams, frequently here at the Mayo Clinic, we use the short test of mental status, very sensitive and specific test, uh, even for early cognitive mm -hmm. impairment. Um, and in some situations where I really want to um, ascertain very mild cognitive impairment or perhaps if a person has very high educational attainment, I might use a test like the Montreal Cognitive At uh, Assessment, the MOCA. Mm -hmm. Our appointments seem to be getting shorter and shorter all the time, and time is important. These don't take a lot of time to administer, but can these be given by somebody other than a physician? Great question. Um, a number of practices across the U.S. have tried to answer just that question and have been very successful with partnering with members of the care team. So nursing partners or medical assistants that uh, with some direction and training can do an excellent job doing a mini-cog or even a Kochman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you do when you have a patient who has what you think is mild dementia? Are these mental status exams useful in picking that up? Yes. The tests we talked about, the short test of mental status and the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, tend to be a bit more sensitive than some of the other tests for identifying that early impairment because they have four and five items to recall. Um, and there are a number of different distracting activities that we ask them to perform before they have to mm -hmm. recite those items. And so they do a pretty good job. Again, we're limited. These tests aren't perfect. And so if an individual is having difficulty in other domains, we might not pick it up as easily. So what do you do? If the mental status exam gives a normal score and you still strongly suspect the patient is having some cognitive issues, where do you go next? Yeah, so sometimes there is a big discrepancy between what we're seeing in the patient's everyday life and what we see on the mental status exam. And it can go both ways. It can be that the patient is much more worried than I am or vice versa. And that's a good role for formal neuropsychological testing. Mm -hmm. So this would be test by a neuropsychologist that's trained to administer a whole array of batteries that look at all the different cognitive domains and really individualize the assessment to what the person is struggling with. Then we can really get a broad understanding of what's going on. And sometimes we can identify other problems like a mood disorder that could mm -hmm. be contributing. And I've even had patients where the formal psychometric testing was not sensitive enough to pick up definite dementia. 
and sometimes you have to repeat it again in a year checking for change yeah absolutely and and making sure that patients know that we take them seriously we recognize that they're having challenges let's recheck mm -hmm. are there things that can kind of falsely elevate the mental status score so make it maybe less valid um I always determine whether they've had some exposures to the test in the mm -hmm. past, so whether there was some learning, or perhaps if um, they had very high um, educational attainment, say they've done several years of postgraduate training, that wouldn't be the population these tests were validated in, and so they might still have a near perfect score, but still have some change from their baseline. Yep, okay. All right, well, let's talk about assisting caregivers. So you've got a patient who has dementia, but you almost have inherited a second patient, and that's that family member who's going to be providing their care. What kind of needs do these caregivers have? Yeah, well, I think that recognition of that important person on the journey is the first and best step, just like you mentioned. And, and teaching caregivers and partnering with caregivers pays dividends down the line. And we've had several studies that have demonstrated that caregiver coaching and support programs uh, that help the caregiver can have numerous downstream positive benefits. We see reduced negative behaviors in their loved one. We see reduced mood disorders or burnout in the caregiver. And there's some interesting data that shows that if we can support caregivers, we can delay nursing home placement by years uh, and keep folks in their own homes. But there's there's many things that we can do for caregivers. But And so every time I'm seeing a patient and their loved one in the office, I try and weave in a little bit of caregiver coaching mm -hmm. or teaching. And the first one we always talk about is communication. So really slowing down our communication, giving people time to answer the question, simplifying our communication and making sure that we're giving two options instead of open-ended options, and then really um, using strategies that help caregivers not get frustrated. Mm -hmm. So stop arguing. You don't need to correct. You don't need to quiz your loved one. All those things that can create some animosity or frustration between the individual with dementia and their caregiver. So we really try and emphasize those strategies mm -hmm. at every visit. Yeah. What's the role of respite care for caregivers? Yeah, this is so important. And so teaching caregivers that it's okay to accept help even if their loved one is a little bit resistant to another person coming into the home. I think that if we can support caregivers to take care of their own health and wellness and get out of the house and make sure they're exercising and eating well and all those things that keep them well by accepting respite, then we can keep their loved one safe and healthy in the right. long term. So it helps them both. I've had families uh, who say that it's like having a child around again, and, um, but they're an adult body. And I think there's a reason why we have children when we're younger, because it's very challenging to care for somebody who needs our assistance 24 hours a day. And they do need a break to get away from this once in a while. Absolutely. And most of uh, U.S. caregivers are in that sandwich generation where they're still taking care of their own children or grandchildren right. and their parents. Let's talk about a topic that is very challenging, and that's when a patient with cognitive impairment needs to stop driving. That is always a hard conversation to open up. 
driving requires so many cognitive capacities. We have to have selective attention. We have to have good visual spatial skills. We have to plan and we have to use judgment constantly. And dementia impacts every one of those cognitive domains. And so it's really important that from the very time that somebody is um, first starting to notice cognitive symptoms that we start thinking about this as a key safety priority. Um, I try to first normalize this discussion of driving retirement before a person gets a chronic illness. Normalizing this as we go into our retirement ages that we'll all retire from driving at some point. Mm-hmm. It's, not a, it's not a bad thing. We will all reach that point where we're no longer um, safe or fit to operate a vehicle. And so sometimes if we've had that conversation before, that takes a little bit of the pressure off. Sure. Yeah, but it's really critical that we assess. Yeah, knowing how important driving is, it, it basically can mean the determination whether they can remain independent. You know, can somebody still stay in their own home? Are they going to have to move in with a family member? Are they going to have to go into assisted living or long-term care? And I, I, I would often assess, you know, where are they going? Is it just to the store three blocks away? Is it just a church once a week? Are they driving at night? Are they driving on freeways? Um, how many left turns they make? That's a great one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, majority of accidents uh, in, with with driving tends to occur with uh, left turns. So it, it's a very difficult decision, and um, it, it can change the life of our patients. Absolutely. I think that one thing that is helpful is now we have a lot more transportation alternatives right. than we did even 10 years ago. In addition to volunteer-based services and family members, now we have app-based services that many seniors are taking advantage of. and. Um, Many of our older patients that live in retirement communities now have shuttle buses that will take them pretty much anywhere they need to go. So if we do make that decision that this individual needs to stop driving, then we need to match that with a, and then we're going to think about these transportation alternatives because we certainly don't want an individual to become isolated uh, from, from the activities that they really enjoy. Right. I always used to stress when I would work with residents that Taking away your driving privileges is just half the problem. You need to find some alternative to help them get their food, get to where they need to go, and some type of transportation. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, let's finish up with advanced care planning. Uh, this is important, and it's important to do it early in the cognitive decline. Um, how do you guide patients and their families in advanced care planning? Yeah, you're right that advanced care planning is a longitudinal discussion that we need to have frequently in the setting of dementia. It's often really hard for people to predict what they would want in a future state, uh, especially in a condition like dementia where we know that they will have a dependence on others around them. And so the more we can really get to understand people's entire approach to life, their values, their fears, their hopes, um, what's important to them early on in the course of dementia, I think then we're much better off uh, to be able to advise them and guide them through advanced care planning. So early on, I really try to get a sense of who they trust, Mm -hmm. who their healthcare proxy would be, a person that could advocate for them, who is also agreeable to being their proxy. And I really try to get a sense of what is most important to them what makes their life worth living, what sorts of future state would make their life not worth living. Mm -hmm. 
I always tried to get the family to elect a spokesperson too, because if you're dealing with multiple family members and they're all over the country, it always seems like some major issue occurs on a Saturday evening and trying to get in touch with everybody and make a plan so much better when you have one person in charge who speaks for the family. Right, right. And especially if that person can be the person that also attends visits with their loved one, has good communication with the rest of the family members, and then getting it in writing, taking the time um, when the family is all together to work on an advanced directive that spells things out really takes the burden off of the other family members. And, And I liken it to not making a decision for their loved one, but being the voice of their loved one. And making a unified decision so everybody is in agreement about how aggressive things are gonna get when it happens. That would be so important to have that in, uh, in writing early on so you know. Absolutely, because there are many folks that receive invasive treatments that they maybe wouldn't have wanted and Mm -hmm. we could have prevented those types of uh, interventions that are sometimes painful, harmful, um, and that aren't aligned with their goals of care. Okay. We've been discussing caring for dementia patients with Dr. Erica Tung, a geriatrician at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Erica, it's so nice to see you again. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. This has been my pleasure, Daryl. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.